I always love it when we read a passage of scripture and then we end up singing it later. God with us, Emmanuel. What a great, uh, appropriate song for this season for us to sing. Well, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, as we continue our study in uh, this epic letter that Paul wrote to the believers in the churches in Rome. And uh, we're moving into another chapter. And so we're making some progress here. And uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at the first six verses of this chapter. Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Paul writes, Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that he, we might bear fruit for God. For while we are in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Father, we come to you um, again this morning, uh, thanking you for your holy word. We have great confidence as we come to another text, desiring to understand what it means and how it applies to our lives, that the same spirit that inspired Paul to write these words is the same spirit that will now illuminate our minds to understand what this means and how it applies. And so, Lord, we, Lord, I speak in dependence on your spirit. Lord, we listen in dependence on your spirit. And we ask that your spirit would have his way in our hearts so that we would be who you want us to be, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we've been studying Romans together, I'm sure by now you've figured out that Paul was a brilliant man. And like most brilliant men, he's not always easy to understand. Uh, the pastoral staff are reading a book right now um, of biographies written by John Piper. And while I'm thoroughly enjoying reading it, uh, for me, it's not the easiest read. Because if you've ever read anything from John Piper, you know he's intellectual, he's emotional, and he's poetical all of which I'm not. And so I find myself having to reread sentences and, and paragraphs just to try to understand what he's actually saying. Well, I find myself having to do the same thing as I read and study Paul's letters, or Paul's letters here to the believers in Rome. And uh, 
I don't know about you, but I, I read something and go, well, well what does that mean? Uh, what, did, what did he just say? And I, I reread it again and try to get my mind around it. And, and it just makes me appreciate what Peter fondly but candidly said about Paul in the second letter that he wrote to persecuted saints scattered all across Asia. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Peter said, just as our beloved brother Paul according to the wisdom God had given him, wrote to you as also in his letters, speaking in them of these things. In other words, hey, I'm just telling you things that Paul's already told you. Um, This is not new stuff. But then he said this, also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand. So in one way, he was throwing Paul under the bus and telling his fellow believers, hey, let's, let's just be honest here. Paul's not the easiest guy to understand sometimes. It's hard to make sense of some of the things that he's written. And of all the things that Paul wrote during his lifetime, I would submit to you that Romans 7 is one of the hardest things to understand. This is one of the most well-known and most important chapters in the Bible, and it is also one of the most complicated and throughout the history of the church, there have been a lot, there's been a lot of controversy over what Paul meant by what he wrote here, which should not come as a surprise, since the issue that Paul addressed in this chapter is the cause of much debate, even in our day. There's a lot of confusion in the church today about the Christian's relationship to the Old Testament law. And that's the the subject of this entire chapter. In fact, the word law is mentioned 23 times in almost every one of these 25 verses in chapter 7. The synonymous term commandment is used a total of six times. And the word letter, which is another term for the law, is used one time. And so you've got some 30 times that the subject of the law is addressed, or at least named specifically. Now, if you've been with us from the beginning of our study, you know that in the previous six chapters, Paul has made multiple assertions about the law, most of which sound disparaging and derogatory about the law. For example, go back to chapter 2, verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. That doesn't sound very nice. Chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Again, not very positive there. Chapter 4, verse 15. For the law brings about wrath. That definitely doesn't sound positive. Chapter 5, verse 20. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. And then all of these opening references to the law... Climax in chapter 6, verse 14, when he said this, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. 
Now imagine for a moment that you're a Jewish believer in Rome who heard this read at church. Typically that's how these letters were um, dealt with. Uh, Paul would send a letter to a church and the leader of the church, the elder of the church, the pastor of the church would get up and read the letter to the congregation and they would hear it all collectively, corporately. And so imagine you're hearing this read at church. What would it make you think? Again, you're a former Jew or you're a Jewish Christian, if you will. You were raised as a Jew and you had come to know Christ as your Lord and Savior. How would it, what would it make you think? How would it make you feel? Now, I know that's hard to imagine because most of us, if not all of us here, are non-Jews. But I think it might help us to remember how the psalmist expressed his high regard and great love for God's law. Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. And Psalm 119 Verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Verse 97 of Psalm 119, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. The prophet Isaiah said this in Isaiah 42, 21 about the law. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to make the law great and glorious. And the last command given in the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 4, 4, 4, verse 4 is this. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. So when you consider what the Old Testament said about the law, God's law, how could Paul apparently dishonor and disregard the law? It's no wonder why those who had such an intense reverence for the law accused Paul of being an antinomian or anti-law. To Paul's critics, salvation by grace through faith alone apart from keeping the law, seem to be a great way to have your cake and eat it too. In other words, all you have to do is believe in Jesus and you can just keep on living however you want. Well, sadly, many so-called believers over the years have claimed that or believed that or, or, or taught that. They, they, they've claimed that the law has no place in the Christian life whatsoever, and they've wrongly reveled in their freedom in Christ. Like it says in 1 Peter 2.16, they've used their freedom as a covering for evil. Or in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, they, they use their freedom or turn their freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. I came across one example of this back in the 
early church in the second, third, fourth century, there was an obscure sect called the Adamites. Not sure if any of you ever heard of this. I had never heard of these guys. Uh, They claimed that they were completely free from the law and professed to have regained Adam and Eve's state of original innocence. You see where this is going? And so they called their church paradise and they worshiped in the nude. Like Adam and Eve in the garden. Now, obviously, that's an extreme example of antinomianism. But Paul knew that in the minds of his readers that this is what would inevitably happen if you take his teaching about the law to its logical conclusion. See, the Jews understood that God had put them under the restraint of the law to keep them set apart from sin. And they couldn't conceive how anyone who was released from the law and no longer under a system of rules and regulations would not just go hog wild into sin. They had a hard time believing that, that being under grace alone could actually serve as sufficient motivation for holy living. What's more, they were naturally wondering why God gave them the law in the first place if he never intended for them to keep it. And so here in chapter 7, Paul addressed these questions and these concerns by explaining that while we have been released from trying to keep God's law to earn a right standing with God or before God, the moral aspect of the law, and I'm making a distinction between the, the moral aspect of the law, which you could say maybe are the Ten Commandments, the the eternal principles in the Old Testament that are repeated in the New Testament as opposed to the dietary restrictions or the sacrifices or the ceremonies or the festivals, things that were the ceremonial aspects of Jewish law. Um, But the moral aspect of the law remains the revelation of God's will, which he still expects us to keep or fulfill by living holy and righteous lives out of love for our Savior, Jesus Christ, and in the power of our helper, the Holy Spirit. Let me say that again, because I think that is really the heart of what Paul's getting at, not just here in chapter 7, but also as he moves into chapter 8. That while we've been released from trying to keep God's law for our justification and even our sanctification, the moral aspect of the law remains the revelation of his will, which he still expects us to keep or fulfill by living holy and righteous lives. And this is the key, out of love for our Savior, Jesus Christ, and in the power of our helper, the Holy Spirit. In other words, freedom from the law is actually freedom to fulfill the law but rightly motivated and rightly empowered. We always say motivation is everything, right? What is motivating you to obey the law or keep the commands of God? Is it out of fear? Is it to earn God's acceptance 
Or are you motivated out of love for Christ? And are you empowered by the Holy Spirit? Well, one of the commentators that I've grown to love over the years is a man by the name of John Stott. And uh, he's just a brilliant um, expositor. And I, I always look forward to opening his commentary to see what he has to say on any given passage. And, and in his commentary on these six verses, Stott suggests three ways to view the law. And I think this is good just to kind of lay the groundwork for us. Um, there are the two extremes, which most of us are probably aware of, and that's legalism and antinomianism. Legalists believe that their relationship with God depends on their obedience to the law. In other words, they live in bondage to the law. Antinomians, again, we uh, mentioned that that means anti-law. They reject the law and claim that they're under no obligation to obey the law. And so unfortunately, they tend to live in bondage to sin. But Stott suggests a third attitude, which he describes as law-fulfilling freedom. And this is how he describes it. Quote, he says, law-fulfilling free people preserve the balance, the balance between legalism and antinomianism. They rejoice both in their freedom from the law for justification and sanctification and in their freedom to fulfill the law. They delight in the law as the revelation of God's will, but recognize that the power to fulfill it is not in the law, but in the spirit. Thus, legalists fear the law and are in bondage to it. Antinomians hate the law and repudiate it or reject it. Law-abiding free people love the law and fulfill it. Paul addresses all three of these attitudes towards the law, or at least the, the first two, and then advocates for the third attitude, to be a law-abiding free person. Now, I think it helps to also divide this chapter up into parts, and it naturally falls into three divisions. Uh, the first division we're going to look at this morning, verses 1 through 6, uh, Paul focuses on the authority of the law. And uh, he describes how believers are released from the law and are remarried to Christ, who we gladly and lovingly serve. Verses 7 to 13 talks about the ministry of the law, and Paul explains how the law is a good thing, in that it reveals sin and produces conviction of sin in both unbelievers and believers alike. And then finally, in verses 14 to 25, he talks about the inability of the law that the law can't deliver us from sin because it can neither justify nor sanctify us. And so this morning, let's look at this first section in which Paul explained how we are no longer under the authority of the law. And, and Paul, very interestingly, described believers' relationship with the law by means of an illustration drawn from marriage. And if you remember from last week, we said that in chapter 6, verses 15 through 23, Paul compared and contrasted two slaveries, slavery to sin or slavery to God. Uh, well, here in chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, he compared and contrasted two marriages, our first marriage to the law and our second marriage 
to Christ. And I've, again, just divided these verses into three simple sections, the axiom or principle, the analogy or illustration, and then the application. Let's look at, first of all, the the axiom or the principle in verse 1. He says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? That term brethren, I think, is a specific reference to Paul's fellow Jews. Um, And I think he's using it here as a way to endear himself to them because it seemed to them like he was dissing the law. And they viewed him as a traitor to the law. But I would also say in light of what he goes on to say here, he was also addressing the Gentile believers in the churches in Rome because they also had experience with how the law works. And I'm not sure you noticed, but look back again at these six verses and just kind of let your eyes um, skim over these six verses and you'll notice how the English translators have, have sought to help us distinguish when Paul was referring to the principle of law in general, and when he was specifically referring to the Mosaic law, the the list of laws that God gave the Jews through Moses on Mount Sinai. Notice in verses 1 through 3, the word law is in the lowercase, speaking about law in general, but then when you move to verses 4, 5, and 6, the word law is in uppercase, capitalized, um, for the purpose of saying now I'm taking this principle about the law in general, and I'm talking about the Mosaic law in specific. And in verse 1 here, uh, I think it's also important to, 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 to note that there's no article before the word law. There is in the English translation, but in the Greek, there's, it just says, um, for I am speaking to those who know law. So Paul had in mind law in general, be it Roman law, Greek law, Jewish law, just just basically human law and how it works. And he says, you know that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. In other words, laws are made, designed, intended to rule over or control people to keep them in line, if you will, but they only have dominion over us as long as we're alive. A dead person is no longer bound by the law. And we see this happening more and more often in our country with all the the, the active shooters who kill people and then kill themselves. Even though they've committed a a heinous crime, they can't be prosecuted, they can't be punished for that crime because they're what? They're dead. So there's nothing the law can do. They're not bound by the law anymore, they're dead. And so Paul is simply saying this is a a self-evident, universally accepted truth which serves as the foundation for his argument about the believer's relationship to God's law. Paul was saying, you you shouldn't be surprised by my statement that believers who have identified with Christ in his death are no longer under the law. Again, going back to verse 14 of chapter 6. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, 
but under grace. And Paul wants us to understand that in the same way we've been released from sin through our union with Christ and his death, so too we have been released from the law through our union with Christ in his death. And Paul went on to use the marriage union to illustrate our new relationship with the law. And so we move from the axiom to the analogy, verses two and three. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Now, let me say, first of all, that these two verses were not primarily intended to provide instruction on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And I don't think we should use this passage to argue that no one is allowed to get divorced for any reason, or that the only time someone can get remarried is if their spouse dies. I say that because Jesus and Paul both addressed the issue of marriage and divorce and remarriage and other passages. And I think any discussion of this sensitive subject requires harmonizing all these passages, looking at Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7. And the reason why I say all that is because I realize that these verses, as even just reading these verses, will, will naturally stir up questions in some people's mind and even stir up guilt in some of your hearts who have experienced divorce and have been remarried. And even as believers, I think these, these verses create questions and, 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 and cause guilt because we aren't faring much better than the world these days, are we? When it comes to honoring and abiding by God's design for marriage by cultivating and maintaining healthy lifelong marriages. And there's no question that these verses clearly affirm God's original design for marriage, which was for one man and one woman to be joined together for life. Genesis 2.24, God established the, 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 the union of marriage when he married Adam and Eve in the garden. And he said, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become what? One flesh. And so Paul was simply using the permanency of marriage, which by the way, is reflected in traditional wedding vows to this day. What do we, what do we say when we get married? As long as we both shall live or till death do us what? Part. And so Paul is using the permanency of marriage as a way of illustrating how death breaks the marital bond or nullifies the marital union. He says, for the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he's living, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning the husband. In other words, when your spouse dies, your marriage is annulled, it's dissolved. You're, you're no longer under obligation to maintain that marriage covenant. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. In other words, if you marry someone 
Else, while your spouse is still alive, that makes you an adulterer. But if your spouse dies, it is perfectly legal and acceptable for you to marry someone else. In fact, the Bible encourages remarriage. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39, 1 Timothy 5, 14. We're to marry in the Lord, it says. Again, cutting through the questions, cutting through the guilty feelings that some of you may be having right now, the point of this illustration is simply this. The death of a spouse breaks the legal bond with that person. That's all that Paul's trying to say here. The death of a spouse breaks the legal bond with that person. So Paul now went on to apply that principle, that same principle to the death of a believer in Christ, which breaks the legal bond of the law. And so we come to the application in verses four through six. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that You might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we are in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Now again, I specifically chose the word analogy here. Because marriage was an analogy that Paul was using. It was not an allegory, something that he intended to be spiritualized. And every detail about the relationship between a husband and wife to be literally applied to the relationship between the Christian and the law. Again, he's simply wanting to uh, kind of this is high level, big picture thinking here that, that being released from one Marriage makes it possible to be joined to another. Being released from being married to to one person makes it possible to be married or joined to another. And that's what he's saying here. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead. And again, Paul is using this idea of our identification with Christ. Christ that we shared in Christ's death and resurrection. When he died, we died. And when we died, we died not only to sin, but also to the law. And when Christ rose, we rose. And when we rose, we were no longer married to the law, we were married to Christ. There's lots of parallels here in verses four, five, and six with what Paul said in chapter 6, verses 2 to 7, go back there and, and notice, he says, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. And Paul is now 
adding to that and saying he who has died is not only freed from sin, but is also freed from the law. In fact, they're synonymous. When we were freed from sin through our union with Christ's death, we were simultaneously freed from the law. Death to the one is death to the other. Again, John Stott states it very clearly. He says, quote, If to die to sin means to bear its penalty, which is death, it is the law which prescribes this penalty. Therefore, to die to sin and to die to the law are identical. Both signify that through participation in the death of Christ, the law's curse or condemnation on sin has been taken away. In other words, through our faith in Christ, we're released from living under the curse, under the condemnation of the law. Since as our substitute, Christ fulfilled all the demands of the law, which included the penalty of death that the law demanded. And so consequently, our relationship with the law has been annulled. It's been dissolved. And we are now remarried, if you will, to Christ. And now we're permanently obligated to serve and obey him. But we do so out of love and gratitude for what he, for who he is and for what he's done. He is the giver of the law and he's the keeper of the law. Again, Paul liked this analogy of marriage. This is one of his favorite analogies to describe the relationship that we share with Christ as a follower of Christ, as, the church of, as a member of the church of Christ. You may remember um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, Paul was concerned about where the church in Corinth were uh, spiritually, He says in chapter 11, verse 2, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. And of course, Ephesians chapter 5, he likens the the relationship between a husband and wife to Christ and the church, right? That that fabulous passage there. But I say that just to point out that within the bond of marriage, why, why is this such a good analogy? Because within the bond of marriage, there was a closeness, there's a oneness, unlike any other human relationship on earth, which is the basis for a life of faithful, fruitful service to each other, to your spouse, and to the Lord. And notice where he goes in verse 4 here. He says, you have been released from the law, or you've died to the law, When you died with Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, here it is, in order that we might bear fruit for God. God's purpose for releasing us from the law and joining us to Christ was for us to be able to live a transformed life that manifests itself in in fruit, new attitudes, new actions, new words. This idea of fruit is used throughout the New Testament by Jesus himself and Paul. John 15, 5, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. 
and so proved you to be my disciples. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Philippians 1, verse 11, Paul prayed for the believers in the church in Philippi that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. In other words, the only way to bear fruit for God or meaning to live a holy, righteous life is to get out of your bad, destructive marriage to the law and get married to Christ, who is a far better husband. And it's as if Paul pictured the law here as an abusive husband who was trying to kill us. When you think about that, the, 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 the contrast between a, a gracious, gentle foot washer compared to a demanding, cruel, brutal wife beater. He describes what it was like to live under the oppressive enslavement of the law, our old husband. Verse five, for while we were in the flesh, in other words, while we were unsaved, when we were unregenerate, when we were an unbeliever, this is the opposite of being in Christ, being in the flesh. While we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. So you've got sin and you've got the law and you've got our, our own bodies all ganging up on us to try to kill us. And we're going to see in the weeks to come when we get to verses 7 through 13 how the law worked. Verse 7 I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to, the, to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So by naming certain things sin and forbidding them, the law stirred up the evil desires and impulses of our hearts that, that, that really characterize and control unsaved people. And so we've got these evil desires and, and impulses that, that characterize us, that control us as unbelievers, which, which use our body parts to do the very things that the law says not to do, which produces bad thoughts and words and actions that lead to death. They bear fruit for death, verse 5. We're getting used to this expression because Paul repeatedly affirmed throughout this letter that sin leads to death. We just looked at it in chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is what? Death. Turn over to Galatians for a moment. 
because this is a great parallel passage to look at when it comes to our understanding of the flesh and the spirit. Look at Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets the desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And so as we're going to see in a moment back in Romans, this is exactly where Paul was taking this thing. It's all about the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, being empowered by the Spirit. Verse 19, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, these were all the things that characterized our lives as unbelievers, But, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And I love verse 24. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus, i.e., Christ is your new husband. You belong to him now. Have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Back to Romans 7. That leads us into verse 6. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound. We are free from bondage to the law in that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Galatians 3.13. He became a curse for us. Now again, that doesn't mean we're free to do what God's law forbids. Oh, we're free from the law? The law doesn't matter anymore? Has no authority over us? So we can go out and break the law and do whatever we want? Well, we know the answer to that question. May it never be. That's what Paul's critics were assuming What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Chapter 6, verse 1, may it never be. And then verse 15 of chapter 6, what then shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. I had a buddy of mine who called me this week and we were talking about Romans chapter 7 and I asked him, kind of where he landed on some of this and he offered to send me his notes. And so um, I had the privilege of reading through uh, his notes for his sermon on Romans chapter seven, verses one through six. And I chuckled when I came across this line. He said, we weren't released from marriage to the law so we could be a swing single the rest of our lives. That's a great word picture, very vivid. And I texted him and commended him for his excellence in exposition by using 
vivid word pictures that captures people's imagination and that really illustrate the text well. Paul's point, again, is that we got remarried to Christ and now we serve and obey Christ. Notice he says, so that we serve in newness of the who? Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. That oldness of the letter phrase is a reference to the old covenant, which was written on stone tablets, which we know has been replaced by the new covenant in which God has written his law, where? On our hearts. Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. The classic Old Testament passage about promising, looking, looking ahead to the new covenant Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Let me read it for you. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. There's the husband imagery, even back in the Old Testament. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after these days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Paul picks up on this new covenant in, already in, back in chapter 2 of Romans. Notice In verse 29, he says, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, Paul said this, God also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And again, here's another parallel between chapter 6 and chapter 7. Chapter 6, verse 4, it says that we were raised from the dead through the glory of the Father so that we too might walk in newness of life. And here in chapter 7, verse 6, he talks about how we have been released from the law and joined to Christ so that we could serve in newness of the Spirit. When we get saved, we receive the Holy Spirit who produces in us an entirely new perspective in regards to keeping the law. He grants us both the desire and the ability to keep it. And so again, what Paul is saying here is simply this. We are released from the law. Or maybe we say this way, we have been released from the law. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, not your good works to get you to heaven, then you have been released from the law and you've been remarried to Christ whom you serve gladly and willingly out of great love and gratitude. Why? Because he rescued you from your fearful, slavish existence with your old husband who demanded the impossible from you. He demanded that you obey 
a set of rules to make you right and to keep you right with God, something that you could never do in your own strength. But now we're joined to the one who gave the rules, who made the rules to begin with, but who perfectly kept those rules for us and who humbly and sacrificially paid the punishment that we deserved for breaking those rules and who also has graciously sent the Holy Spirit to help us obey him now that we're his followers. And so when Paul says here that we serve in the newness of the Spirit, this is a reminder that it's the Spirit who indwells us He is the one who enables us and empowers us to honor and serve our new husband, Jesus Christ. Now at this point, Paul could have jumped immediately to chapter 8, where he elaborated on life in the Spirit. And if you know a little bit about Romans, you know chapter 8 is all about life in the Spirit. In fact, look at chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, you're no longer living under the condemnation of the law. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That's where Paul's going to, or going in his mind but he knew he needed to first answer the objections that his readers, particularly his Jewish readers, would now have about the purpose of the law in light of what he just got done saying. So he had some more objections to, to respond to. And that's what he does in verses 7 through 13. And then also in 14 through 25. But for now, let's return to the question that was posed to us at the beginning of our time, and that is whether the law is still binding on Christians today. Are we free from the law? Or does God expect us to obey it? Well, the answer is yes and no. But Paul's answer in this text is yes. Because freedom from the law is actually freedom to fulfill the law with new motives and new means. What is the motive? Love for Christ. What is the means? The power of the Holy Spirit. I think it is safe to say that the Christian life is serving Christ in the power of the Spirit. Is that the Christian life? The Christian life 
is serving Christ in the power of the Spirit. And we serve Christ because we want to, not because we have to. Which is described beautifully by another one of my favorite British commentators, Stuart Oliott. In this little book, he has written the gospel as it really is. Romans simply explained. Listen to what he says. A Christian keeps the law of God in the same way as a submissive wife yields to the husband she adores. The glad obedience of love. It is plain that a Christian is not wicked with no care for the law at all. That's what the concern of the Jewish readers might have been. You're going to end up with a bunch of wicked Christians running around, completely carefree without any care for the law, nor is he an antinomian who uses salvation by grace as an excuse to live as he pleases, nor is he a legalist who has a cold attachment to a mere set of written rules. Instead, he is a delighted, hearty law keeper and behaves like this out of love to Christ. And then he ends his explanation or comments on, the, on these verses with, with this illustration. I want, you, I want to read it to you because I think it's, it's really helpful. A single man who lived on his own decided to employ a housekeeper. When it became plain that she did not understand what was expected of her, he placed a list of detailed instructions on the kitchen wall. They began like this, rules of the house. Meals are to be served at eight, one, and six. Washing up is to be done immediately after every meal. No tea leaves are to be put down the sink. The beds are to be changed once a week, and on and on and on it goes. When the housekeeper saw these rules, she resented them, and the more she thought about them, the more resentful she became. Yet she knew that there was little that she could do about them. She therefore decided to try to keep them, but this in no way lessened her anger and bitterness. Every time she saw them, she could not help but think, who is he to tell me what to do? Which, by the way, is the attitude of most unbelievers. Who is God to tell me what to do? He goes on, it's a long story, but suffice it to say that the housekeeper eventually married the man of the house. Something changed. Things were now entirely different. Because she had come to love him, she could not do enough for him and tried to satisfy his slightest whim. Of course, he took down the list of rules from the kitchen wall, but knowing that these were the things which pleased him, she continued to do them. What is more, she did them with true enthusiasm and delight. She wanted to do these things because she was so much in love with her husband. There was a distinct difference between her past experience and her present experience. And then he says this. This is precisely the distinction between your present Christian state. Or excuse me. With your pre-Christian state. And your present Christian state. As described in verses 1 through 7. When you were unconverted. You resented God's 10 commandments. Now that you are converted. You seek to do them. And take pleasure in doing so. This is because you are actually joined to the one who gave the rules. And you serve him not in the oldness of the letter. But in the newness of spirit. Isn't that beautiful? Let's pray. Father we pray that that would be our experience. 
that we would not be like that embittered housekeeper resenting your laws while all the while trying to keep them. But Lord, that we would experience union with Christ that would change everything about the way we view the rules and regulations that you laid out for us in your word. That we would want to do them because we love you so much. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who is enslaved to a a wife beating, the wife beating husband of the law, as it were, that they would long for a better husband and that they would see that that better husband is the Lord Jesus Christ and that they would be willing to turn away from their life of sin and place their trust in Christ alone for their salvation so they could experience the joy of living in line with the laws that you laid out for us in your word and they would find the the joy and blessing that comes with obedience to Christ. We pray this in his name, amen.